Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Marty Plum, and I am your host of a pen and a napkin podcast, the weekly coaching clinic that you can carry around with you in your pocket. Welcome to episode number 105, and I am here with the author, Carl Pearson, out of Minnesota, and we're going to talk about a couple of his books, his 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 only two books, I guess, unless you unless you have a secret book that you haven't told us about, Coach. No, it's two. It's you, just, you've got it right. Just two. Okay. Uh, uh, a lot of you probably own his book, uh, The Politics of Coaching, and if you don't, you need to buy it, and we're going to talk about that here in a couple of minutes, uh, and his new book, The Other Side of of glory, which I just finished last week, and it's a great read. But again, we're going to get into that in a little bit. Uh, before we talk to Coach Pearson, uh, we of course want to thank our founding sponsor, Cosac Chiropractic, located at 144th and Maple here in Omaha. Coaches, if you have an athlete who is struggling with balance, neck, or spinal issues, have them go see Cosac Chiropractic. Follow us on Twitter at a pen and a napkin. We try to have a daily coaching tidbits on the Twitter handle, so be sure to follow us there. Obviously, if you're listening, you're on iTunes, so download, rate, review, give the podcast five stars so that we can get the word out to gain momentum in the ratings and help other coaches hone their craft. And last but certainly not least, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. Carl Pearson, how are you this evening, my friend? I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to be with you. I've, I've been following your Twitter account now for a couple of years. And, uh, I just, uh, what a valuable resource for coaches. You know, you can go on there and you do your two minute drill and you pick up drills here and there. And I mean, like you said, it's, it's a coaching clinic you carry around in your pocket. And I, that's just something I wish I would have had 25 years ago when I started. <laughs> well, uh, as I've said many times, I, I, you know, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank my wife, uh, for, you know, it was, it was her idea for me to do something and it's just, uh, grown the, the way that it has. And, um, I'm just as surprised by it as, as, as anybody else. And so I, uh, very humbling words. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I'm glad that it's uh, you feel like it's a tool that's helping other people, and that was that was always the purpose with it. So, uh, just like you are helping out other people with with your writing, so we've we've got two guys here that are just trying to help out other folks. Um, you know, let's 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 just start with this, uh, Carl. Uh, just tell us about your background. Uh, you know how you got into coaching, kind of your coaching experiences, uh, and uh, yeah, well, you know your basketball journey. Well, I grew up in Mitchell, South Dakota, which I always say is home of one of the top five high school basketball venues in the country, the, the world's only Corn Palace. The Corn um, Palace, yes. Correct, yeah. So, it, it, and, and growing up there, um, I've, I've said for a long time that basketball is basically a religion. Um, we understood the intricacies of the man-to-man defense before we were taught our multiplication tables. <laughs> so, it, it, it's... Uh, it's it's something that every kid aspires to grow up and be a Mitchell Colonel. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was our our mascot, of course, with the Corn Palace. We we're uh, yep. Our, our 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 mascot was a corn cob named Cornelius, <laughs> but he had boxing gloves, so you don't mess with Cornelius. Um, you don't want to I, pop off to Cornelius. Right. Yes, exactly, exactly. Oh, we heard all the puns. Trust oh, me. yes, we heard all the puns. Yeah. Um, but I I had the the great fortune of playing for one of the. The legends of, of coaching, not just in South Dakota, but I would argue nationally, a guy by the name of Gary Munson, who 
I think between coaching boys and girls basketball, which he was able to do both for a while before the, you know, cause girls basketball was yep. in the fall mm-hmm. uh, for, for a long time. Uh, I think between the two, he compiled about 16 or 18 state championships. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was very blessed to be part of one of those. Um, I, I didn't have any business being on the team. I wasn't a, a particularly skilled basketball player, but um, he, he saw saw fit to put me on the team, and, and it really put me on a path to coaching. He's he's a huge reason why I got into coaching. Um, I, I coached baseball, football, and basketball for years and years, but I, I started coaching basketball when I was a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. I, I coached fifth and sixth grade park and rec basketball um, at, at one of our elementary schools, and just fell in love with it and, and knew that this is something that I wanted to pursue. And um, I, I coached at Aberdeen Central High School in college. I attended Northern State University in Aberdeen. I didn't play basketball there, but I, I did play baseball in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and then taught in Red Wing, Minnesota for, for one year before I became the head girls coach at, at Red Wing. Um, I ended up going back to Northern State in the 03-04 season. Uh, as a graduate assistant for the women's basketball team. And during that time, I got to spend a year observing and being around Don Meyer, which yeah. was a, another tremendous blessing. Um, I would just, you know, I'd stick around after our practices and watch his practices. And you talk mm. about a coaching clinic. I mean, every day yeah. I was picking up things to make our practices more efficient and better. Uh, made me a, a much better high school coach. And uh, so through the high school ranks, I, I, I coached at Champlin Park High School, which is a big suburban school, uh, about 17 miles from Minneapolis. And then uh, I spent eight years at Waconia High School, and that's where I still am a teacher. Uh, But I I resigned from coaching a little over two years ago, and now I'm, uh, it's not a full-time job, but I've I've devoted more time to being the executive director of the Minnesota Girls Basketball Coaches Association, which uh, it's a a great way to stay connected to coaching, but it also allows me to be a much better father and husband than sure. I ever was during my coaching years. Yeah. Um, I, I can't imagine just having that free, uh, free, just, just the free clinic that you got on a daily uh, basis from coach Meyer and just having just, you know, unlimited access uh, to, to everything that, that uh, he brought to, to the program and, and to coaching in general. I, I think my hand would have cramped up writing so much stuff down. I mean, I, I'm sure, I'm sure yours did too. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, observing the practices was great, but um, the thing that I really enjoyed the most and the memories that I, I treasure the most are our long bus rides that we had in that conference, you know, going from mm-hmm. Aberdeen, South Dakota to Winona, Minnesota, or Bemidji or something. Those are eight hour bus rides. And, and I would sit up up front with all the coaches. And uh, I mean, he and I would banter about politics and, you know, other philosophical things and not just basketball. And, mm-hmm. and that was probably the most fun of all. Yeah. So what, what, and, and, and Carl, I'm not, I'm not saying this just because you're on here. Um, when, when I found out about your first book, uh, The Politics of Coaching, I ordered it right away. Uh, I went to my AD at the time, a guy named Mike McMahon, and I said, you need to get this for all of our coaches, which he did. Um, and I have kept your book in my backpack with me at all times uh, <laughs> since since it came out, uh, just as a reminder of the politics of, of coaching. And, you know, what what kind of inspired you to, to write that, that book? 
Well, there was a, a seminal moment that, that actually kind of triggered me to write it, and that was one of my longtime friends in coaching. He, he called me and said that he was just fired, and we were both stunned because mm-hmm. he'd been wildly successful for years and years. He was the kind of guy that did everything right. He worked with the youth kids, um, you know, did all kinds of great stuff with his teams in the offseason, was a straight arrow, I mean, just never did anything wrong. Um, but he was oblivious to the politics that were going on behind the scenes and some of the parents that were pushing buttons. And so as I sat down and talked with him about, you know, how did we get here? How did this happen? He was he was sharing with me things that unfolded over the course of that final season that to, to myself as a person that was a political science major and somebody that's really been immersed in politics my whole life. I'm a, I'm a government teacher and I grew up in a very politically involved family. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I saw a lot of red flags as he was sharing stuff with me, but again, he, he didn't see them that way. And it made me realize he has fallen victim like so many other coaches across the country to the politics of coaching because he's, he's in, he's in coaching to work with kids and X's and O's and he likes all that kind of stuff. And, and so many coaches either deliberately ignore the politics because they say, well, I just want to focus on coaching. Yeah. Well, they do that at their peril yeah. or they don't, they don't understand the warning signs. And so that's what motivated me to write it. Uh, and as you said at the outset, the whole goal was to help coaches preserve their job in this really difficult coaching climate. Mm-hmm. And, and I, uh, it, it's been very gratifying to, to know that I, I think the book is, well, I, I know it's over 5,000 copies sold nationally and, and that was a couple of years ago. I haven't seen an, an updated number since then, but the idea being it's helped a lot of coaches. Clearly it's not helped everybody because yeah. there are still coaches getting eaten alive out there. Yeah. Um, but the more we can spread the word, hopefully the, the, the more coaches we can preserve. But before we, before we jump into the book itself, uh, you know, you bring that up that there's coaches that are just still getting eaten alive. What's, what's the top, in your estimation, the top one or two things that are driving this, and 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 it's it's been happening since people started keeping score in anything, and and that's just the the to a degree that's the way it works. But you know we're getting to the point where it's almost an epidemic in in some ways, and and you know good people are not getting into coaching because they don't want to. Uh, it's it's not that they don't want to, but they just don't want to if you know what i mean you know they don't want to put up with the politics of it you know what what do you think has has made that turn in the last oh 20 years or so well i think there's one dynamic that you you hit the nail on the head when you said 20 years uh, a dynamic that didn't exist back in the 1980s and 90s and that is the rapid rise of club sports Mm -hmm. and in basketball in particular we deal with aau so the, the thing that happens is parents are investing thousands of dollars into their kid playing on, you know, some elite academy top, whatever, you know, they, they get all these labels. And then when it comes to the high school season and they're coming off the bench, you know, they're the, the seventh kid in your rotation or, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, the, the parents say, well, wait a minute. Our AAU coach said that <laughs> our, our son or daughter is a scholarship athlete and they're not even starting for you. You're going to cost them a scholarship. Mm-hmm. And so it puts a lot of pressure on the high school coaches that didn't exist before uh, because now there's that financial investment that parents mm-hmm. have made and they want to return on their investment. So the, the, the different roles of an AAU coach or a club coach versus a high school coach are 
ultimately, when you run an AAU program, it's a business, right? I mean, you, yeah. you, you've got to cater to the customer. And so you've got to tell these kids and, and tell these parents, oh, yeah, you're a scholarship player. You kind of got to stroke egos to keep the customer happy and keep them coming back. Uh-huh. We don't have to do that as high school coaches. <laughs> yeah, we, we we can be honest and say, listen, this is this is where you got to get better. Um, and and that's that's not something people are interested in right now. It's instant gratification, as, as everybody knows. Yeah, um, I think the other thing that has probably made the coaching environment more difficult in basketball in particular is the nature of, of kind of youth traveling basketball and how we've got. We've, we've started to lean more and more on parents to coach it. Yeah. So in, in sixth grade and seventh grade, you've got a mom or a dad that's been coaching this group of kids. And a lot of times they don't want to turn the keys over to somebody else. <laughs> they, you know, they, 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 they won the sixth grade championship playing two, three zone. And they can't understand why at the varsity level, you're not playing two, three, cause it worked in sixth grade. Well, yeah. I think we all know why it worked in sixth grade because nobody can make a three in sixth grade. Exactly. <laughs> but it, it, things change when they get to the high school level, and, and that's one of those kind of disconnects that happens between parents and and reality sometimes. And, and those are things that we have to deal with now that maybe they didn't twenty years ago. Well, and I and I think <clears throat> there's that that supply and demand that you're talking about. Um, twenty, you know, twenty twenty five years ago in in Nebraska. Uh, there was this, there was a uh, there was basically one club team and and it had a statewide tryout and there would be 300 kids that would be trying out for 24 spots uh, a junior team and a senior team and they're turning away all staters and all conference mm-hmm. kids and, and that type of thing and now uh, you have kids who will never play higher than the freshman team in some places uh playing AAU which I'm I'm not I'm not be you know saying that's bad you know if a kid wants to try and get better and wants to get better to play on their high school team uh and if they're given that opportunity they should they should pursue it I'm I'm by no means am I not saying that but it's like you said it's you know when we have to make those decisions which are difficult decisions for us as high school coaches we're the ones not delivering on the promises of another uh is is where we get stuck yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, I, I don't mean to demonize AAU. I think it has its place, and there's some value in it. Yeah. But the, the, the landscape of it has changed, as you said. It used to be something for the truly elite players, you mm-hmm. know, the, the top 30 or 40 players in the state, which if Nebraska is anything like Minnesota, and I would imagine it is just in terms of numbers and stuff, I mean, Minnesota is going to produce about 30 to 40 Division One girls basketball players in, a, in the best year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and then maybe another, you know, 30 to 40 D2 kids. So we're talking about, and then if you, you throw in some NAIA, which is not very prevalent in Minnesota and a lot of people don't know about it, but yeah. you know, you're talking maximum a hundred scholarship kids a year, but in any given senior class, there's three or 400 girls playing AAU. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're not all going to get a scholarship, but a lot of them have been told that. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, it, like you said, it comes down on our shoulders. And that's one of the things that's made coaching more difficult now than it was before. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. So let's dive in. Let's dive into the politics of coaching. And and I, I reread it again um, just over the last few weeks. Kind of when I had 10 minutes, I'd, I'd pull it out and get out the highlighter and, and skim through some stuff. And there's about, I don't know, nine or 10 uh, things from the book that that caught my attention 
uh, on like the 10th reading through, um, <laughs> you know, um, and you know, it's kind of ironic, Carl, you brought that up. Uh, first thing I have on my list, beware of the parent of the sixth grade champions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, kind of, you know, you, you kind of talked about that earlier. Why is that so dangerous? Well, I, I think that one of the, one of the things we need to do as head coaches, obviously you have to be really involved with your youth program and and just like you would at the high school level you've got to coach your youth coaches too mm-hmm. and say here's the terminology we want to use here's the, the fundamentals we want to emphasize the footwork we want to use and, and all those kinds of things and then you've got to try to get them on board but that's the challenge because a lot of times they are volunteers uh with little to no coaching background mm-hmm. um and that can be good and bad i mean sometimes it's good when they don't have a lot of coaching background because they'll just implement whatever it is you tell them to do mm-hmm. But other times, you know, they'll they'll say, well, our girls can't do that, so I'm going to do this. I'm, you know, I was always a motion coach, and I'd occasionally have somebody say, well, we need to run flex because they can't run motion. And um, and and so the like the analogy I would use with parents in that circumstance is I'd say, okay, well, the flex offense. And by the way, no offense to anybody that runs flex. You know, <laughs> if you run it well, that's great. But for our purposes, I said the flex offense is kind of like buying a. A six hundred dollar used car. Yeah. It's it's going to get you where you need to go for a little while. Yep. But then it's going to break down, and then you're you're kind of stranded. Yep. The motion offense is is like a Rolls Royce. It's going to take you a long time to pay it off. But boy, once you got it paid off, man, you're going to look good driving that thing around. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so a lot of times you got to sell it to the parents that you know this is the way we want to do things. But the other challenge for those parents is. Again, immediate gratification, instant gratification. Everybody wants to win right now. Mm-hmm. And I've got a son that's in fourth grade right now. I was just having a, the conversation with him after his first game on Saturday. Uh, they were they were playing a team where they would they had one guy that had the ball in his hands ninety percent of the time. They would clear out and just have him drive to the basket. Yep. Nobody else on the team touched the ball. Yep. He never subbed out, right? Mm-hmm. Every other kid is subbing out. This kid never came out. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, my son's team, we got five kids going in, five kids going out, and everybody's rotating at point guard and all this kind of stuff. And I, I just I, try, I tried to explain to him, teams like that are going to win right now. But in four or five years, nobody cares how yep. many fourth-grade weekend tournaments you've won. Yep. And, and that's the thing I, I just tried to keep emphasizing to parents is – I know everybody wants to win right now. You could win if you just go ISO and go side pick and roll with your two best players and tell the other three kids to get out of the way. But that's not developing kids. That's not going to make them better for the high school level. And you're going to have all these sixth grade tournament championships to keep you warm while you're going sub 500 at the high school level. Yep. And and what what is it that you really want? Uh And, And so those are the things that I think we have to keep emphasizing to the youth youth coaches all the time. It's kind of ironic because I went and watched three or four of my teams play today, um, and there was a it, in our third grade uh, with our third grade team. Uh, they were playing a team, and the guy was running a one-three-one trap. <laughs> and, and and my coach came up to me after the game. I said, and we were kind of talking about it, and I said, well. Uh, you know, that that guy will be able to put that win on his resume, I guess. You know, and yeah. it's just you know. You're you're winning today. You're, you're you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. So, um, here's another one. Every parent has an agenda. Sure, and and actually, Don Meyer 
has a famous quote related to this one. You know, he, he would say that a parent would rather see their kid win the win all conference than win the conference championship. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's the nature of parenting. And and I don't ever I've never begrudged a parent for that. Yeah. I mean, part of your duty as a parent is to look out for the best interest of your kid. Yeah. It's not the parent's responsibility to you know try and decide what's in the best interest of the whole team. Mm-hmm. But that's why coaches and parents will always have kind of this wedge that divides them mm-hmm. because we have we have kind of responsibilities that are in always co- constant combat with each other. Yeah. Um, we we don't have the luxury of looking out for one kid. Right? Yeah. We have to we have to look out for the best interest of a team, but a parent is always going to put their kid first, and and that's fine. Um, it's as long as we understand that about each other. So I always tell parents, I respect that part of your job as a parent, mm-hmm. and I, you know I won't condemn you for it, but I'm going to ask you to reciprocate that same respect to me, and understand that I have a different responsibility than you. Mm-hmm. And and as long as we can kind of approach that from a respectful point of view, and again. I think it's incumbent on coaches not to just say, oh, that, you know, that parent's terrible because all they care about is their kid. No, that's their job yep. as a parent. Yeah, <laughs> That's what they're supposed to do. So understand that and respect that. And if we come from that place of mutual respect, I think that that prevents a lot of the, the problems that, that tend to crop up between parents and coaches. My dad told me one time, every parent loves their kid a little bit more than they love everybody else's kid. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, there that's a lot of truth to that, you know, and, and so when when you have a parent that might overreact about something or say something, you know, I've, I've always tried to keep that perspective to a degree, uh, you know, but then, you know, we also have that overriding purpose of, yeah, you know what, I feel sorry for you. I, you know, I, I wish I could find, I always tell my parents all the time, uh, I wish I could find 32 minutes and 25 points for every one of your kids, but I, but I can't. You know, and so we have to make hard decisions and, you know, I, I hope that you can respect that. And, yeah. you know, that's, 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 that's another line that I've used and I don't know if it's worked or not. Sometimes it has, sometimes it hasn't. Sometimes, sometimes it doesn't matter what you say because you're just never going to win that battle. Don't you think, Carl? Correct. Yeah. There, there are some parents that, um, because they have their mind made up and, and they're, they're just intent on a certain outcome. Yeah, there you can you can be as level-headed and composed as you want. You can explain everything in a very rational way, and it's not going to matter. Mm-hmm. But I, I'll tell you this: over all the years uh, and all the different sports I coached, I really believe those parents are the minority. Yep, um, agree. That, that if you have Agreed. if you have the conversation, most of them, you know, and you can say you're not going to agree with everything I say. And that's, you know, but at least you're going to know where I'm coming from and why I'm deciding what I'm deciding. Mm -hmm. And I think that that helps a lot. And then the other thing that is really helpful is sometimes just listening and and letting that parent unburden themselves, get all these things off their chest. So many times that's all they need. They just Mm -hmm. they just want to be heard and make sure that, you know, their kid knows that they're advocating for them and then they'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. And that's the hard thing for coaches sometimes is to sit and listen to that parent say all those things because we're competitive people yeah. and and we're not usually just going to sit there and take it. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes that's the best thing that you can do is just listen and say, I understand where you're coming from. Um, and, and the line I always used is I'm going to do what's in the best interest of your kid to the extent that I possibly can. But the moment what's in the best interest of your kid 
comes into conflict with what's in the best interest of the team, I've got to put the team first. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and that's, again, that's, that's where there's always going to be that conflict between parents and coaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one of my favorite ones from the book, leadership does not always manifest itself in a positive manner. Um, and, and if you've done this job long enough, um, you've, you've been in that situation. Um, what, what did you, where were you going with on that one, Carl? Well, I, I mean, when, when you said it, the, the first thought I have is, you know, there, there are times to be encouraging and, and pat people on the back. And, and I think we all recognize that as coaches, but there's a time and a place to kick some butt too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and I think that if you're selective about it, if, if you pick your spots, you know, that, then that, that can be an effective tool for you at times. It's kind of like the, what I'd always tell my captains. Um, I, I'd say, hey, as captains, your job is not to criticize your teammates. Your job is to lift them up once a, co- a coach does criticize and say, hey, we've got to get better at this or we're not doing a good enough job here. You're supposed to be over there lifting them up. And if you do that on a consistent basis, then that one time during the season where they need to hear another voice where, you know, maybe they're starting to tune out coach and you come in the locker room before the coaching staff does and lay into them, then they're going to listen because they know you care because mm-hmm. they, they, they know you've had their back all those other times. And it's really not that in, that different when it comes to us as coaches, too. Um, we, we've got to be supportive of our players 90, 95 percent of the time. And then when we do come down on them, um, They'll, they'll they'll be able to, to take it and they'll respond to it uh, as long as they know that you are ultimately on their side. Yeah, and and I think that you you have that equity of of being able to get on your kids uh, if you've built up that trust. Uh, if you haven't built up that trust, then you can't come down on them, and and that's sometimes. Uh, coaches think, well, I've got to be this tough guy uh, from the get-go, and I've got to establish me as a coach. And nah, you know, you need to establish great relationships before you can be the tough guy, uh, because especially today, you know, they're going to tune you out very, very quickly if you just come in as the tough guy from the get-go. And and that's where that you know, in you know, what's the saying? Uh, in the absence of no information, negativity will will set in, or in the absence of communication, negativity will mm-hmm. set in, and and that's something that you have to be cognizant of as well. I agree completely. Yeah, the importance of secretaries and janitors. <laughs> yeah, I mean that actually that's something that I I learned from uh, Northern State basketball coach Bob Olson. He was the guy that immediately preceded Don Meyer. Um, but he, in our theory of coaching class, he spent a whole day talking about that. And I think it's one of those things that maybe young coaches take for granted, or especially if you, if you happen to be at a larger school where you have people that take care of a lot of those things for you. I know those of us that coach at smaller schools, we're the ones that are sweeping the floor before and after practice and, and doing a lot of those other duties that maybe get taken care of at, at bigger schools. But uh, your activity secretary man, she can make your life so much easier um, if you don't rely on her for everything. And I, I, actually, I was just talking to the activity secretary at our school here the other day, and, and she was confiding in me about uh, one of our coaches that tr- treats her like his personal secretary. And it just aggravates her to no end because she's got 30 different sports that she's got to mm-hmm. take care of. Um, so if you 
do your job and and take care of all the things you can take care of and only call on those people when it's absolutely necessary. I mean, that's, I think that's a huge important thing to, to keep in mind, but um, get to know them on a personal level. And I mean, shoot, I, I buy our custodians donuts once or twice a year. Um, I, I do the same thing for our secretarial staff or, or buy them pizza or something here and there just to, to let them know that they're appreciated. And then when the time comes that you need that favor, like uh, here's an example. A few years ago, we had a, a hoop break on our main court uh, the day before a game. And it was going to disrupt our whole practice because we got a ninth grade team on one floor and a sophomore team on another floor. And, you know, I'm going to have to kick them off. And mm-hmm. our custodian came out and he had that thing fixed in five minutes or less. It was amazing. I, uh-huh. I couldn't believe he replaced the whole rim in five minutes or less. <laughs> but he dropped everything for us because we've always taken good care of them mm-hmm. and, and we show respect for them. So really, really important thing for any new coach to do is, is cultivate a relationship with those people because they're going to be as important to you as anyone. Well, you shouldn't have been dunking that hard, Carl. That's, that, <laughs> yeah, <you know>. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, that's us living in our dream world, isn't it, a little bit? So. Mm-hmm. Um, Large donations come with strings attached. Yeah, so this there's there's a lot of anecdotes in the book, as you know. Yeah. Um, some of them my own and some that were given to me by other coaches. Um, but when you said that, I, I was immediately thinking of uh, somebody that I coached against. They were a, a com- competitor in our conference, but uh, they explained that their booster club was in charge of um, – writing the checks to pay for their entire assistant coaching staff. All their assistants were paid for by the booster club. And as a result, the boosters after a couple of years decided they could, they could dictate who the assistant coaches were going to be. Oh, that's 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 danger zone right there. It was terrible. And and so the varsity coach said, no, that's not how this is going to work. I get to choose the staff. And and there was a big battle between the boosters and, and the head coach and uh, the boosters ended up winning (laughs) because the school didn't want to write the checks to pay for the assistant coaches. Um, And so that, that head coach resigned at the end of the season. And um, so if, if, well, and actually there's a school down the road from us, this, this is, I don't know. I found it, I found it kind of funny, but that's also because the school is one of our bitter rivals. (laughs) Um, So a, a dad bought I think like 24 new basketballs or 36 new basketballs, a few dozen new balls and a, and a nice ball rack to put them all in uh, at the start of the season. And mid season, his daughter wasn't getting the the amount of playing time that he thought she deserved. And so he took all the balls back and and the ball rack, the team, because the team gave all their, old balls to you know the lower levels and stuff oh they were left goodness. with no balls for, for oh about a week or 10 days um, they, they had to borrow balls from opposing teams coming in or say bring your own balls and it was a mess but you know the the guy made a, a really nice donation but it was i think under the assumption that well this is going to buy my daughter playing time and when it didn't well the donation went away yeah and that's that that's that's the the petty petty stuff and you know you 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 have to, uh, you have to ask your parents for things uh, to a degree. Um, you know, like with our, uh, we do one big fundraiser a year, and I, I, I tell them, you know, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask for your, all your work ethic and so forth and so on 
for for one night a year, and then I promise I'll leave you alone the other 364. And let's put together this one event for this one night and be done with it. And and I think when uh, when when folks start coming in, you know, you want to be able to afford. Uh, new travel suits, let's say, for your kids, or some new basketballs, and it's just not in your budget because of this, that, and the other thing. Um, it's, it's you, you want those things. You, you need those donations from time to time. But like you said, it can be a real slippery slope to, to go down because I, I always, you know, I'm pretty selective about who I listen to and who offers that stuff and, you know, who I kind of like, yeah, you know, maybe not a good idea because I think there's some ulterior motives. And that, and that's just been learned through experience mm-hmm. as well that, you know, just 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 because it's being offered doesn't mean, you know, as coach Meyer used used to say, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And and that's that's one of those things that you you have to really thread that needle as you're trying to do nice things for your program, but you know that it's there's something that might be ulterior motives on the other side of it. Right. I had a, I had a parent just kind of out of the blue say, well, I'd like to donate $500 to the program. And right away, the thing I did is I looked at it and said, well, his kid's kind of a marginal kid. Mm -hmm. You know, I I don't, I mean, they, they might be in the varsity rotation. They may not. Well, if I take this $500, then there's going to be some expectation. It's no different than politics, right? I mean, if you take a donation from a special interest group, they're going to expect you to, to cast a vote in their favor when a bill comes along. Yep. And and so that's, that's where the politics and coaching again, kind of uh, come together. But um, ultimately I said, you know what, we, we have enough money that we fundraised. I appreciate the offer. I'm not going to take it now. However, if his daughter was one of our best players and I knew she was going to play all the time, the calculus might've been a little different yep. <laughs> because yeah. you yeah. know, she's going to play anyway. Sure. Mm-hmm. I'll take your money. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, those are the things that you have to consider as a coach. So you don't get yourself into trouble. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was in that exact scenario, uh, my first or second year where, um, yeah, it was, it was something akin to that. And, um, you know, it, it was, it was difficult to navigate, you know, and, and we'll just, we'll just leave it at that. So, um, I think one of the best, uh, sequences in the book is when you talk about how you need to confront a parent or an administrator, um, and, and your, your four keys to it, confront on your terms, confront with a plan, confront from a position of strength and try to confront in private, if at all possible. And, and I think that was, I think that's just such golden advice there, Carl. Uh, if you could go in a, a little bit deeper on, on, on that topic as well and kind of your experiences in, in that arena. Well, I, fortunately, I didn't have a ton of, of these kind of meetings over the years because I think I was proactive in the way that I communicated with parents. Uh, but the handful of them that I did have, uh, I, I did learn the value of the coach getting to kind of dictate the terms of where and when you're going to have this meeting. Um, so it would always be at the school. Um, uh, I would always make sure I had at least one of our assistant coaches there because otherwise, you know, the, the parent may say, well, this is what was said. And I'll say, well, no, that's not what I said. And, and, and so instead of having that, he said, she said thing, I've got somebody to corroborate what I'm mm-hmm. saying. Um, 
but and I think the other thing too is like if a parent comes up to you after a game and says we need to talk right now you it's well within your rights to say no we we can have this conversation but this is not the time and place um you know give me a call tomorrow we'll set something up and I I will make sure that I, I visit with you about this but don't do it in front of a crowd don't do it with the the whole team around where it becomes uh somebody puffing out their chest and, and trying to show how tough they are whether it's the coach or the, the parent right i mean that's mm-hmm. that's not a good situation for anybody um i was in one of those circumstances once but as i kind of reference in the book it was yep. in a little bit more of a calculated situation um yeah in terms of the plan i think the other thing that i always did before I would sit down across the table from a parent or, or maybe a couple of parents of, of, a, of a kid is I would try to anticipate all of the things that that parent might come at me with. Yeah. Um, so I would, I would, I would prepare a little bit like a lawyer does mm-hmm. and, and try to anticipate those arguments. So I would have something to say either to, to cut it off, uh, you know, prevent it from even being argued or if it is brought up, I have a counterpoint that I can make right away. I, I just think that's so crucial because if you just kind of go in off the seat of your pants, the thing is that parent has prosecuted the case against you in their head for weeks or months mm-hmm. in advance of this meeting. And so if you haven't prepared in the same manner or at least given it some time in advance, they will tear you apart. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it's really important that you do that. Um, and then, like, like we said, doing it in private um, no, that doesn't mean that the player can't be there. I've done it both ways. Um, sometimes I've had the player there. Sometimes it's just been me and the parents. Uh, I think that, you know, again, the situation kind of dictates that depending on what the, the topic of conversation is going to be. But uh, out, out of sight of, of uh, the rest of the parents, the, the rest of the team, that's always really important. Yeah. One of the things that I had uh, more than one parent try to do, and I didn't have uh, a lot of these either. Uh, but you know, they would try to bring up another kid on the team, mm-hmm. and and you know, I was always prepared for that. And, no, we're we're not talking about Mary or, or or Becky. We're talking about you know Susie here, and we're here to talk about your daughter. We're not talking about anybody else. And that's that's one of the things that a lot of parents want to do is compare your their kid to, you know, another kid's playing time or their their role on the team or whatever it may be. And that was one of the things that was one of the questions that I or, or statements I was always really prepared for as well. Um, you know, and 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 it's hard. It's hard because you don't want to be uh, a, a jerk and and sometimes but but at sometimes and i'm sure you were there too carl sometimes you just have to put it in just no nonsense this is as plain as i can put it this is your you're not going to like what you're going to hear over mm-hmm. the next 30 to 45 seconds but you've put me in a situation where i can't sugarcoat this this is exactly where you are and it's going to be so blunt that you're you're probably going to be even madder after this uh did that ever happen to you Absolutely. Yeah. But I think that that's, that's the right thing to do mm-hmm. because if you go in and you tiptoe around things with the parent, you're not going to resolve anything. Um, and, and like we said several minutes ago, I'll always preface it with saying, listen, you're going to, you're going to hear exactly what I think. I'm going to, I'm going to, if you're going to ask the question, you've got to be prepared to get the answer. And, and so they, they may disagree with my perspective. 
mm-hmm. but I'm the one that's at practice every day. I, I'm the one that, you know, sees the, the kid perform in oh. that environment. Mm-hmm. And, and so when I give my assessment, you don't have to agree with it. You don't have to like it, but at least you know where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. And, and this is how I've arrived at the decision that I have. It's based on this set of information. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it doesn't frequently happen that when it's all said and done, there's flowers being sent to you and, and apologies <laughs> being made. Although I, I will say that's, I've had apologies made once or twice, like, oh, because yep, the so say, you know what? I didn't realize that. Yep. I didn't realize that my daughter's been late to practice, you know, four times in the last two weeks and, mm-hmm. or, or things like that. Cause they don't always hear everything at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's why it's good to have those conversations sometimes, but yeah, by and large, they're not going to leave with their mind changed, but it does help them that they got listened to and they got some stuff off their chest because this is the thing I say in the book. And I I've said this when I go out and talk to coaching clinics and, and at schools and stuff, if you're, if you're that coach that says, um, I'm not, I'm never going to talk to you about playing time. Don't call me about your kid. I'll hang up the phone. I say, well, that, that might help you sleep that night as a coach. It doesn't lend itself to longevity though, because if you think by you saying you can't talk to me about this, that that parent's not going to talk to anybody. Yeah. You're crazy. Yeah. Instead of talking to you, they're going to talk to other parents in the stands, which is going to start creating a a groundswell against you amongst all the parents in your program, or they're going to start talking to administration and school board members and superintendents. And now they've gone way above where you can take care of it. And, and I always say the genie's out of the bottle at that point. Mm-hmm. Now it's in the hands of administration and you've lost control of the situation. It's mm-hmm. always preferable to have that uncom- uncomfortable conversation with the parent and take it on yourself rather than have it become something that's out of your control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you talk about that as well. Uh, there's no such thing as communicating too much with your administration. I think that's an excellent lead in. Thanks for reading my notes from 500 miles away, Carl. I appreciate that. You did, you did that really well. So, uh, but, uh, you know, how important is it to have that open line of communication, that frequent line of communication with your administrators and keep them up to date with, go, with, with what's going on in your program? Well, I mean, if you want to continue coaching for any length of time at that particular school, it's among the most important things you can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you have to prioritize making sure that you're reaching out to your athletic director or whoever your immediate supervisor is, and in anticipation of all right, we're gonna we're gonna cut these six kids from the team, or we're gonna move this kid up, and now this senior is gonna be coming off the bench. They've been a starter; they're gonna be coming off the bench. You need to let the AD know that before you pull the trigger on that decision, mm-hmm. so they can support you. Yeah. So they can have your back and they know, A, what's going on and why it's happening. Um, I think too frequently, an AD will get a phone call from a parent saying, what the heck's going on here? And then the AD says, well, I don't really know. Yeah. And and now all they've heard from that parent is how terrible you are and how awful you are and what a terrible decision you're destroying their kid's life. And now when they come to you and say, well, help help me understand this, um, you're you're in a position of being on the defense. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you, again, act preemptively and proactively and explain that to the AD, now when the parent calls to complain, the AD 
A, understands why they're complaining, and B, can can be supportive instead of saying, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, every AD I've ever worked for, and I think it's probably five or six at this point, um, they've all said they don't like surprises. Yeah. So uh, you got to gotta let them know before any, any big change is made, any big decisions made, and most of them will be able to have your back in that situation. Yeah. One of the things I would do quite frequently is I would sit down and I, and I would schedule a meeting with my AD um, and, and okay, here's my three, four, five things that I see coming in to this year that could disrupt the apple cart a little bit, whether it could be uh, a playing time issue with, with person X, Y, and Z, or uh, who's starting and who might be upset with coming off the bench, uh, you know, just anything like that. And just, you know, try to give them uh, a heads up that you know we've we we've we've thought a, ahead about these things we've we've tried to anticipate the problems before they happen and but but here's the decisions that we ultimately have to make but this might be a rip some ripple some negative ripple effects from those decisions is is that something that that you would advise other coaches to do is, is that a smart thing or was I an idiot no no a hundred percent that's exactly what you should do uh, uh-huh. that's that's going to preserve your standing with that athletic director um, for a variety of reasons. I mean, one, it just shows how thoughtful and deliberate you are, that mm-hmm. you're not making decisions flying by the seat of your pants, but that you've put a lot of time and, and thought into it. Um, but it also, again, it, it kind of helps them know, all right, well, when the phone rings and it's Mrs. Johnson, I know what to expect. I know what I'm going to say in advance, and, and, and it puts them in a position where they can support you and have your back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and and they have a they have a, a response ready to go uh, when when they get that that email or that call or whatever it may be. So, a um, couple more things here, Coach. Um, some of the hardest teams to coach, uh, and this is the quote you have in there: uh, "We expect to win, but we don't have to work for it," and. Those are really, really hard teams to coach, and how do you work your way around it? Yeah, so the the time that we usually encounter that as coaches is when you've had a, a group of sophomores and juniors that were very successful, and you know maybe they won a conference championship and and reached the doorstep of the state tournament or something, and then they expect that just because they they turned a few pages on the calendar. And now they all all have that SR next to their name that other teams are just going to lay down mm-hmm. and they're going to coast and 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 do really well. Um, well, we're really talented. We've we've won all these awards and and so on. Um, those those are challenging teams to coach because they don't want to be pushed. They think they've already made it. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's always going to be a. I mean, every every coach. Well, hopefully, every coach has the the privilege of being in that situation because it means you've had some success to that point. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's not challenging. And I, I think the the thing I, when I've been in that situation, the thing I try to emphasize to the, the kids and their parents, because it's equally important to the parents understand this too, is, you know, some of those old cliches, but you know, cliches become cliches because there, there's a lot of truth <laughs> to them. Yeah. And that is that we're going to get everybody's best game. Everybody, this is their Super Bowl when they play us, and if if we aren't bringing it every night, and if if we're just the same team that we were last season, um, everybody's been working to catch up to us. Mm-hmm. 
And so if we didn't put in that time in the offseason, if we're not spending that time in the weight room, everybody else is, and we just raised their game while we kept ours the same, well, that's that's not going to turn out very well for us. So um, it's it's a challenge, but I, I think if, if, again, if you confront it head on, and I think sometimes coaches are worried, oh, well, I'm going to ruin the confidence of my team or, or something like that. And I'm not saying you have to rip on your team or tell them they're not any good. I think you just got to give them that dose of reality and say, you know, like we've all said, hey, you're not just going to show up and win. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, nobody's nobody's going to be scared just looking at that SR next to your name. You, you're going to have to put in the time and get even better because ultimately, that team that you know thinks they can just show up and win, you can probably still remind them. Well, did we win the state championship last year? Yeah. Because if we didn't, then I think we still have some room to grow, and and that's what we've got to focus on. You know. Yep. Yep. Um, let's end this part of it with this one and and this is uh the kod the kiss of death uh you know your book uh your book's well over 200 pages long uh 240 245 of of text um i've got it sitting right here carl so uh but your your chapter 10 uh all politics is local and and you really break it down to at the end of the book you you basically uh, talk about, in, at least in my experiences and, and the, the folks that I've, my, my friends in coaching that have, that have had issues with politics, it's, it's the three big ones that cause 95% of your problems. Uh, putting your teams together, i.e. placing this kid on at this level. Uh, the second thing is cutting players, and the third thing is playing time. And for, for all the coaches that will be listening to this, Probably ninety to ninety-five percent of our political issues come from those three things, and so uh, let's talk first about putting teams together. and And what are words of advice that that you have when it comes to trying to figure out how to put your teams together and and how to avoid as much as you can politics when you're putting together a team or, or dividing your teams? Yeah. Well, I, I think I can I can boil it down into a couple simple things. Um, I, I think one of the most common mistakes made by new coaches or young coaches is that when they come in, they think, well, I want to play all these young players that will c- kind of grow with me, and, and I'm going to bench the seniors or cut the seniors or something like that. And I, I understand that as, as a new coach, you're kind of looking two and three years down the road, but you may not be around for year two and three, if you just ax a bunch of the seniors or, or don't treat them right, uh, I, I think the the line I use in the book is, um, you know, it's a an adaptation of a, a famous line, and that is, "Hell hath no fury like the the parent of a cut senior," um, because they got nothing to lose, right? Mm-hmm. That that kid will never get to play again. They don't have another year or two in your program, and they can spend all their time trying to end your career. Yep. So if you're gonna if you're gonna cut a kid that has invested years and years of their life into this program, you better make darn sure that you have good rationale and good reasoning, other than I want to play a bunch of young kids. Mm-hmm. So then the the second thing I would say is when it comes to promoting young players, you've got to be careful. Um, this this has always been my rule: if a senior and a sophomore. Uh, if I'm trying to decide, you know, which one am I going to have in my varsity rotation? That sophomore can't be as good as the senior. Yep. They have to be noticeably better. Yep. Because if they're as good 
and I bench that senior or cut that senior, that kid's career is over. If I, if I play the senior, that sophomore can still play at the JV level or the, the sophomore team or whatever. Their career is not over. So if you're going to make a career-ending decision, it better be because that younger player is going to be the difference between your team winning 15 games and 25 games uh-huh. or the difference between being a 500 team and, and winning the conference. Um, because if, if you're just going to say, well, they're even, so I'm going to go with the younger kid, you are setting yourself up for all kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. further and, and this will be the last thing i'll say about picking teams when you promote that young kid early it's it's hard to get inside every kid's mind and know how they're going to react but yep. if you've been around coaching long enough you know that some kids get promoted as ninth graders and again they think they've made it yeah. and now they stop working in the off season because i'm on varsity i'll be on varsity next year and they never become the player they could have been because they got moved up so early they stopped working now that might be 20% of the kids that you promote early. But if you're going to promote a kid, you better be darn sure about that kid. And you also kind of have to have it in the back of your mind that, well, let's say they don't get any better from here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are they still going to be, because I think sometimes we, we promote on potential. Yeah. And, and if this kid is the same player now or as a senior, as they are now, is that good enough? Yeah. Or am I promoting on, on potential alone? Now, again, a lot of it depends on, where's your team at uh, are you going to be competing for a conference championship or are you rebuilding there's other elements but those are just kind of some basic rules that I, I think you always have to examine when you're when you're choosing teams i i think that you hit the nail on the head though we're we're so anxious to bring up the the young kid and i and i and you know i'll i'm guilty of that you know and and that's one of the harsh lessons that that i had to learn uh it's it's a heck of a lot easier to promote them up than to bring them back down uh if and and i always uh told my coaches hey once we bring them up we can't bring them back down you know this this we have to be really really sure that this is who we're going to go with uh not just for you know this week or next week but next next month next year you know for the rest of their career and we can if we wait another couple of weeks just to be sure that sometimes that's better and and sometimes it's better to uh you know allow that uh upperclassman to either play into their minutes or play themselves out of their minutes as as, as well and and give them okay hey you've been a loyal uh player for the program uh you've put in great time uh, we're going to give you a shot here for this first, you know, this first month of the season. And you, you, you won't say it, say it that way, but it's like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, hey, you know, we're going to give you a crack here in the rotation and, and, and we're going to go with that. And um, then that opportunity is in their hands and, 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 you, and you force the younger player to, to also prove themselves at a lower level as well. And, and I think sometimes we, we get ahead of that, that, hey, why don't you dominate at the JV level before we pull you up to the varsity level too? Isn't that kind of part of the thought process you should have as well, Coach? Yeah, as you're talking, I, I know you can't see me, but I've been nodding. <laughs> That's everything that you're saying. And especially that, that idea of, you know, you give that senior a chance to prove that they can't do it. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes we don't have we're, – we're not in a position to do that because maybe our early season schedule is we got the most crucial games. And uh, you always have to look at the specific situation. But in a perfect world, that's what you would do. Mm-hmm. You give that older kid the first shot 
And if, if they don't take advantage of it, and then you got a younger kid that's, like you said, tearing up the JV, well, then now you can make the move. Um, but if you, if you do it without ever giving that kid a shot, mm-hmm. boy, that's what really puts you in a, in a difficult situation. And you have to defend yourself sometimes, not just to the, the parents, but to administration, school board members, things like that. Yeah. I had a situation we, we brought in, a. uh, or, or we didn't bring in a player. You know, I sound like I'm Jerry Tarkanian or something <laughs> like that. But, uh, but you know, we, we had a player come in, and she was a freshman. And it was obvious that she was ready for JV as a freshman. And so she was she was playing really well. And we had some seniors that weren't playing as well. And so around Christmas time, we gave her a varsity uniform, but she was number 12 sitting there at the end of the bench, you know, Uh and she just kept outworking kids in practice, outworking, you know, and still playing, still playing JV at this time. And then she got in in a couple of blowouts um, and played better and played better. And I was like, okay, well, maybe we give her a four minute crack in a rotation time. And then she came in and did that in a in a couple of varsity games. And I and I remember telling my AD, I said, I know I've got these four or five seniors, but it's I, I can't penalize her for being a freshman in in late January. I can't hold her back any further if she's consistently outworking and outplaying uh, these older kids. And and that slow burn helped with that process. And and were there a couple of parents that were upset with that at the at the end of the year when she eventually ended up starting by the end of the year? Um, but. I felt really comfortable because I was like, I I gave you as many cracks as I could to uh, prevent this from happening, and it just comes to a point where, okay, you know, I can't I can't not hold this player back anymore, and uh, that was a really easy situation to handle because of the way we handled it uh, there, and and that was just a lesson learned from previous mistakes of moving kids up too fast, and and I I think that was kind of the one that really clicked in my brain that okay this is how you handle those type of situations if you can you, you know you right. can't you can't always handle it like that. But, but that was a situation that it worked out well, that we were able to kind of withstand the quote-unquote political heat because, you know, we had given those kids 15 games. We had given those kids two months, and we had given them 45 practices. And it, it, just, it just became, like you said, it was to the point where we couldn't penalize this kid for being a freshman. That was the only reason why we were holding her back is because it said freshman instead of sophomore, junior, or senior behind her name. And, well, and when that's, you play it that slow like that, Oftentimes, by the, the time you make that decision, maybe not all the seniors will, will acknowledge that she's better than them, but a lot of them will understand, you know what, this kid's really good because they've mm-hmm. had a chance to see it played out over the course of weeks and months. And mm-hmm. and like I said, not all of them are going to take that realistic approach, but usually a lot of them do. Mm-hmm. And and then, yeah, that's made the job easier for you in every way. Yep. Um Let's talk about uh, cutting players. the The worst day in in the I, I've always said the three worst days uh, of the coaching calendar is handing out uniforms because it's a pain in the butt to get out all the uniforms and get them handed out and do all that crap. Handing in uniforms because it's a pain in the butt to take them all back and make sure you got everything accounted for. And then if you have to cut kids, uh, those are the three worst days of the year. Um, well, you any- left out one. Oh, okay. What P- was it? Picture day. <laughs> I, I hate picture day, and I would never give up a minute of practice time for picture day. 
because that was always the expectation. So we would come in and do team pictures at like 6.30 in the morning or something, so I wouldn't have to give up practice time. But I still hated pictures. That was always terrible. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I could add that one to, I could add that one to the list, too. So, uh, But uh, any advice that you have for folks that have to cut kids, Carl? Well, I think um, a lot of the groundwork gets laid at your preseason parent and player meeting, which you have to have, by the way, especially mm-hmm. if you're in a position to cut players. Um, and one of the things that I would always do at that meeting is lay out the numbers. And, and I would give kids uh, about a week before our preseason parent meeting, I'd have them come in and fill out a survey. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, all right, w- what's your expectation as we start the season? Do you, ex- you know, circle which one you expect to be starter? Yep. Top reserve off the bench, JV starter, you know, off the JV bench. And, and I, you know, the kids would turn it into me. And then I would present those numbers to the parents at our preseason meeting and say, all right, we have 47 kids trying out for 18 spots on JV and varsity. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, we're going to have, and, and some good players are going to get cut. You know, I would always say that doesn't mean if your daughter gets cut, she's not good. Uh, we're going to have good players get cut when we have this many kids coming out. Mm-hmm. But then I would say we have nine kids that say their expectation is to be a starter. And mm-hmm. as you all know, only five will. Yeah, it's against the so rules. Have, it's against the yeah. rules to do any more than that. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Yep. So we're going to have four kids uh, potentially upset right at the outset. And then, you know, we have 32 kids that say they expect to be getting varsity minutes. And, you know, we, we can maybe get eight or ten of them consistent varsity minutes, but th- but that's it. So I would kind of lay it out in advance and, and let everybody know there's going to be people disappointed at the end of this and just kind of set the table. Now, there's always those parents and players that think, well, he's talking about other people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're <laughs> always talking kids. about somebody else's yeah. kid. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then when it comes to actually uh, making the cuts, um, I, I, when, when we had that big number of kids at the, at the big suburban school outside of Minneapolis, um, I wanted to have something tangible like something measurable that I could provide to parents in the event that they were saying, well, I can't believe my kid got cut. What's going on? So we would, and, and this wasn't, you know, this wasn't like one of the big criteria that we picked our teams on, but we would have every kid um, like bench 85 pounds or something. Is it, how many times can you bench 85 pounds? Hmm. We would test everybody's vertical. We would uh, time everybody uh, running a, a sprint and shuffle course. And, and then, you know, then I could say, and I, I did say this at times when a parent would say, well, how's my daughter cut? Without saying, well, you know, your daughter's not very good. <laughs> I, I could just say, well, you know, we had 47 kids try out. She was 44th in vertical. She was 42nd in our sprint and shuffle course. And, and she finished 37th uh, in, in our bench press. I mean, I mean, when you hear numbers like that, it's pretty hard to argue. Mm-hmm. Um, that my daughter's one of the top 18. Mm-hmm. And so that, that always equipped me with something that I could, I could use uh, in, in the event that I would get those questions. Um, but the other thing is just, just being honest with kids. And, mm-hmm. and then I, I would always acknowledge the courage that it takes to, an, an, to participate in a tryout and mm-hmm. put yourself out there. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a scary situation. And everybody that tries out deserves 
to be treated with respect and, and to, to be admired for showing that courage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and I, I sincerely mean that I wasn't just saying that to placate people. Yeah. Um, because I was a marginal player myself. I know how nerve nerve wracking it was to, to try out and yeah. not knowing if you're going to make the team. So yep. um, I, I think that as long as you show that kind of respect and then you're just very, very cautious about, all right, am I cutting this kid uh, so I can promote somebody uh, that, that maybe isn't ready or I'm, I'm looking to the future? Um, you know, those, you weigh those factors in, uh, I think you're going to, you're going to be just fine most of the time. I, I think one of the things and that, that I always felt it was important when I had to cut players is I would always tell them face to face. I always felt like, uh, they deserved that, that if, that if, if I'm going to make this decision, uh, with something that, and I don't know how important it is to you, but it's important enough to you that you're trying out for something, like you said, um, then I owe it to you to talk to you uh, uh, one-on-one and and look you in the eye. And and if you have any questions, you should be able to ask me those questions uh, and, and not just post a list and and run away from it because i i just think that that it's just the right thing to do because yeah there's going to be some kids will be like oh okay well you know i just thought i'd try out but but you know there's a lot of kids that are really invested in that and and it's going to have some repercussions on them and and so i i just think i always thought that was a really really important aspect when i had to cut kids yes i I agree i've never posted a list we would always bring kids into the coach's office and you make sure you have an assistant coach there with you or maybe two of them to corroborate everything that you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would, I would bring them in and have that conversation. The other thing I would do, and this, I think this is important. In fact, I know a coach that just got burned by this. Um, I would actually talk to the kids that made the team first because I would, I would approach a kid and say, well, right now, as we start the season, we see you being our ninth or tenth player. Yes, yes, yeah, I've done this and too. It, I know where you're going with this, and yeah. I've done this as well. Yep. And 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 if if you're willing to accept that role, there's nobody else we'd rather have play that role. We think you're going to be terrific in that role, and it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you you won't move up, and you know you can't be a starter at some point. But that's where you're at right this now. This is where you're at right now. Yeah. And 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 you know if the kid accepts it, great. But if they don't, so here here's what happened to a coach I know just a, a week or two ago. He cut down to 16 kids on JV and varsity. And then two kids quit the next practice. And he's down to 14 between his JV and varsity. So then he reached out to two kids he had just cut two days before. And they said, no, thanks. Not interested. And so now he's left with a skeleton crew on his JV and varsity. Um, Those are conversations he probably should have had first. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, find out if those kids are willing to accept the roles that they're in and yeah, that's. I think that's definitely talk to every kid one on one, no doubt. And I, I just got done. I, I didn't tell you this, Coach, but right before I came on with you, my wife and I sat down and watched like three episodes of Seinfeld. Uh, so uh, here, here's the uh, uh, to quote George uh, to Jerry Seinfeld. Here's the big matzo ball here, Georgie boy. Uh, playing time, and and there's no, you know, all the, you know. Most of the politics that you talk about, it, it comes down to PT. It comes down to playing time. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, what advice do you have for folks when it comes to that? Well, I, I know the way I phrased it in the in the book is again to draw a parallel between politics and coaching, and that is, 
your best players are your base. You know, you always hear about playing to your base in politics. You, you got to make sure that uh, the people that are like the, the most involved, that always get out and vote in your party, that they're on your side. Mm-hmm. And and that's true when it comes to playing times. So I think, again, a mistake that's commonly made am- amongst young coaches is they try to please everybody. Yep. And they say, well, you know, I'm going to play 10 or maybe 12 kids because I want to give everybody playing time and then nobody will be mad at me. It's actually quite the opposite. Yep, exactly. <laughs> if you try to please everybody, you're probably going to please no one. Um, and and once you lose your base, your five to seven best players, because they feel like we're not getting enough minutes to actually do what we need to do on the floor. Now you've lost your team. Mm-hmm. So you got to play to your base. You got to play those key five, six, seven kids as much as they merit. You know, sometimes, sometimes you do truly have like 10 players that are all about equal. Mm-hmm. doesn't happen a lot, yeah. but sometimes you do. And then, then it probably makes sense to play 10 kids. But if you've got three or four kids that are standouts, they better get a majority of the minutes. And then, um, you know, you, you kind of fill in from there, but don't try to please everybody. Cause if you do, you're going to please no one because those 11th and 12th kids, you might think, well, they'll be really excited that they got six or eight minutes. No, they won't. No, they're going to want more than that. And then your starters are mad too. So, so because that's to, six or eight minutes that you're taking from there. Yep. And I think the other thing I would say is for those kids that do come in off the bench, make sure you tell them how much you value their role and, and them doing that. So this was way back. I think it's my second or third year as a varsity coach. We had a kid worked as hard as anybody in our program. She'd come in every morning and shoot. She wasn't, you know, like athletically gifted, but man, work ethic like you wouldn't believe. And I just said, I got to find some way to get her out there. Well, we had a stud two guard. Our shooting guard was a stud. And she was going to play in, in Minnesota. We play 18 minute halves. Mm-hmm. So she was going to play 30 out of 36 minutes a game. So for this kid that had the great work ethic, and deserved to play, just you know, wasn't good enough. It wasn't wasn't a great player. I said, "All right, you're going to spell her for a couple minutes in the first half, a couple minutes in the second half," and and that was that was the role she took on. Well, at the end of the year, when that kid won all conference, the the stud, I made sure that the kid that came in for her understood part of that all conference belongs to you. She would not have been an all conference caliber player if she wouldn't have gotten two or three minutes off in each half. And you were good enough that we could, we had the confidence to put you out there in that key role, in mm-hmm. that two guard role, for those two or three minutes. Part of that all conference belongs to you. Well, that lifted that kid up, and instead of thinking that you know she wasn't important, now she she walked around thinking I was a key part of the team too. Yep. And and so making sure that you you visit with those sub players, those the, your eighth, ninth, tenth kid on the bench, and and make them feel valued. That's a huge part of your job as a coach. And you got to mean it. It's got to be sincere because otherwise the kids will see through it. But again, I think that's one of the advantages I had of not being a particularly good player. Um, I, you know, my coach always said, well, he would say, you know, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Mm-hmm. And I knew he was talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> so it, when, when, we, uh, when we won the state championship, my my senior year, I still remember going up to him after the game saying, you know what, coach? 
us winning the state championship means I'm the best worst player in the state. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, but you know that he did a good job of making me feel valued, and and I, I, I try to do that now as a coach too. Yep. Carl, this has been awesome. I, you know, I was kind of thinking as we started going through this, uh, th- this has been such a good conversation, and we still haven't got to the new book. So what do you say to this? Uh, let's call this part one. We'll make this one podcast, and let's let's stop here with the politics of coaching, and then let's start recording another one here in a couple minutes with the new book. How about How does that sound? We're going to split this. Instead of making one two-hour pod here, let's, let's make two hour ish or however long we go in on the second one here uh let, let's make let's make it two in, in that way how's that sound sounds great let's all right it. all right let's do that so uh carl pearson this uh turns out to be part one of two here the politics of coaching great discussion uh with coach pearson and great perspectives uh and and so coaches this is invaluable uh i'll, I'll put the amazon link with it when when we post this uh if you don't have this book Order it as soon as you hear this pod. Ask for it for Christmas. Buy a pack of highlighters. You won't regret it because there's so many good things in here that's going to help you progress as a coach and and help you get ahead of a lot of the situations that Coach Pierce had talked about here today. So uh, we're going to wrap up an impromptu part one. I I feel like I'm at a a Springsteen concert, and and the set list that was supposed to go an hour is going to go two hours. And you know what, folks? It's all for your benefit because we just got so much good stuff going on here tonight. So, uh, coaches, uh, hope you enjoyed part one. Uh, tune back in here for part two in just a little bit. Let's be sure to hone our craft one day at a time.